This morning's scripture reading is from the first chapter of the book of Jonah. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're in our second week of our study of the book of Jonah, and just as a quick recap, I want to make sure that we're properly oriented to the historical setting. Uh, So this is happening 
Around 750 BC, most likely, uh, Jeroboam II is on the throne in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the Assyrian Empire, which has been the major nemesis, not just for Israel, but everybody in the region, is actually on the decline. It's a little bit weak right now because there's internal strife, there's a famine in Assyria, there's all kinds of revolts taking place. And so at the time that Assyria is on the decline, um, God had called upon Jonah to, to, pro, uh, to, to prophesy to Jeroboam that Israel's borders were going to expand. So it's going to be a good season for us, Jeroboam. And, and Jonah's uh, prophecy was, not surprisingly, pretty popular. Everybody liked what they were hearing. Um, and then God comes along and gives this word to Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and I want you to warn them of my judgment, right? To go and say to them, 40, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall perish, is giving them an opportunity to repent. And of course, Jonah's thinking, why on earth would we do that? This is our enemy. They're weak. Let's let them get weaker until they eventually go away or we're able to conquer them. And so that's, that's the setting. That's the historical context. That's what's happening as we progress beyond the first three verses, which we looked at last week, into the rest of the story. Now, when you're reading biblical narrative, you want to make sure that you're looking at the main characters in any given section. And you're asking questions like, what are they up to? And especially, how are they being contrasted? So the main characters here in chapter 1 is pretty straightforward, right? It's Jonah, it's the sailors, and it's God. Those are the key players in this chapter. And the key contrast is between the sailors and between Jonah. And in particular, the contrast is between Jonah's fear and the sailors' fear. The word fear is repeated frequently throughout the passage. It's not that surprising. There's a big storm. They're on a boat. People are afraid they're going to die. Of course, they're afraid. But there's actually two kinds of fear in this passage. There's the actual terror of death due to the storm. But then there's this reverential fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord of the storm. So there's that, that dread concerning the actual storm. And then there's this reverential awe and, and fear, as the Bible calls it, of the Lord, who is the Lord of the storm. And, and when it comes to the fear of the Lord, that second kind of fear, there's actually another contrast. There's, there's a contrast between Jonah's fear of the Lord, which is really in word only, and then the fear of the Lord that the sailors come to by the end of the passage where their fear that was their dread and terror of the storm is actually eclipsed by a genuine reverential awe and worship of Jonah's God, of the God who formed the sea and the dry land, of the Lord of the storm. So this morning, very simply, we're just going to consider those three things. We're going to look at Jonah's fear. What are the implications for our lives as we look at Jonah's fear? Where do we see ourselves in Jonah? We're going to look secondly at the sailor's fear and, and do the same thing. What are the implications in our lives? Where do we see ourselves in the sailors as we consider the sailor's fear? And then third, we're going to look at the purpose of the Lord in the storm, in this storm, and in all the storms that we face in our lives. But before we jump in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be with us now as we look at this portion of your word. We're thankful for 
the fact that you have preserved this book for us. We thank you for this story, this true story of an event that happened, uh, my goodness, I guess 2,700 or so years ago. And, uh, and we've got it here uh, for us to learn from, surely, but ultimately to see your glory. And so we ask that you would do so by the power of your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jonah's fear. Jonah claimed to fear the Lord, right? When the, when the sailors came to him and said, who are you, what is your occupation, etc., etc., he identified himself as someone who fears the Lord. But there was a disconnect, wasn't there? There's a disconnect between the way he behaved and, and what he actually said, what he actually claimed. And so verses 1 through 9 in this, in this story, just kind of put yourself there. Pretend you're a fly on the wall or, or um, you know, a little mouse running around on this ship that's <laughs> up and down in the waves and imagine what it must have been like. So again, you know, here's Jonah. He, he receives this word from the Lord. He decides he's going to head in the opposite direction. God says, go east. He decides to go west. He gets to Joppa. He finds a boat. He gets on it. The boat sets sail, and he thinks, I am free and clear. And of course, the Lord had another plan. The Lord sends this storm. The word is actually the word hurled in verse 4. So if there's any question, like I wonder if it just kind of gradually built up, like the waves started to build up and the, the wind started to build up and maybe the sailors were starting to get on their... No, not at all. The word hurled is the same word that's used in the Hebrew for someone hurling a sword. And so the picture is, boom, <laughs> here's the storm. It is thrust upon them and they're terrified. They're all crying out to their gods, is what it says in verse 5. All the sailors were terrified, and they cried out each to their own god. And they're, they're crying out. The wind's howling. The, the waves are crashing. And at some point, the captain realizes, where's Jonah? So the captain pulls back. You know, I picture him pulling back the hatch and looking down and saying to Jonah, why aren't you praying? Like, why aren't you crying out to your God? And then between verse 6 and 7, there's this silence. Just take a look. I don't know if you noticed it before. Verse 6, the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Pause. No response from Jonah. Verse 7, and then he said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. And I wonder, did Jonah just kind of look up as the captain's crying out, pray! And Jonah just kind of pulled up his blanket and said, leave me alone, and rolled over. I don't know. But what's happening? Jonah is paying no attention to what's happening. And so the sailors were told, cast lots to determine who the blame should fall upon. And of course, we know from Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so the sailors cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And now instead of the, the captain pulling back the hatch and looking down, now you've got a number of men, hatch pulled back, and they're all looking down at Jonah saying, Who are you? Where are you from? Who are your people? What is your occupation? He, he's getting peppered with all these questions. And then he answers in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And so let's pause there. Did he fear the Lord? I mean, if what the Bible tells us about the fear of the Lord is that it's, 
it's not terror, it's, it's reverential awe. It's this sense of, of worship, but also of, of joy and delight, of a desire to, to know and to serve this God. If this is what the Bible says the fear of the Lord is, is that what's happening in Jonah? And the answer, of course, is no. So what happened? What happened to Jonah's fear? What happened to Jonah? And you work through the first few verses here, the first half of this chapter, and you see what happened. There are four things that Jonah did that we so often do. Jonah first doubted the goodness of God. He doubted the goodness of God. God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and give them an opportunity to repent. And Jonah could not see any good reason to do that. And so he didn't do it. And because it was God who was calling him to do this, and he couldn't see any good reason to do it, he consequently doubted the goodness of God. And the same thing happens to us. Things happen to us. Circumstances arise. Storms blow in. God calls on us to do things or he permits things to happen or causes things to happen in our lives and we can't see any good in it. And if God is in control, then that means that he must not be good. And we end up doubting God's goodness. But then secondly, Jonah rejects the word of God. Right? God says, I want you to go east. Jonah says, I'm going to go west. God says, I want you to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah says, I'm not going to preach ever again. Right? God's will and Jonah's will came into conflict and Jonah decided to reject God's word. But keep in mind, he wasn't just rejecting God's command. He was rejecting everything that the Bible said, the Bible that he had up to that point, concerning the character of God. And we do the same thing. We don't just set down the parts of our Bible that contain the commands we don't like. We set down our entire Bible. When we put it aside, we're not just putting aside the things that God's calling us to do. We're putting aside the very revelation of God concerning his character, concerning his goodness, concerning his mercy and his grace and his love. We reject God's word, but in so doing, we reject the very thing that reveals to us his gracious character. So Jonah, well, Jonah doubted God's goodness, and then Jonah rejected God's word. But third, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. He ran. He fled from God's presence. Now, Jonah, again, we talked about this last week, Jonah had the Psalms. Jonah had Psalm 139. As a good Hebrew boy, he had the Psalms memorized. He sang them every Sabbath. And so he knew what David said in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I make my, me my, my bed in the heavens, you are there. He knew all this. And so what was he thinking? That he could somehow escape God, you know, geographically or spatially? You know, get to that place where God isn't? Well, we know that that's not the case. The word that's translated presence in the Hebrew here is actually the word face. Jonah sought to run from the face of God. He wasn't trying to get away from God geographically. He was trying to get away from God relationally. 
as Sinclair Ferguson put it, he wasn't trying to flee God's omnipresence. He was trying to flee God's felt presence. And how remarkable that is, given what David knew, I'm sorry, given what Jonah knew from his Bible. All the things that David and the other psalmists had said. Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence, before your face, O God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 1611. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Jonah knew these things, and yet he would rather flee the felt presence of God then obey God's command and go where God would have him go. And so when, when you flee, when, when I do, I mean, every time we sin, we're saying I'd rather be not experiencing the felt presence of God in my life because I think I'll find greater joy in this activity or in this attitude or whatever the case may be than I possibly could gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. So when that happens, do we realize not only who we're fleeing from, but, but what we're fleeing from? The pleasure and the joy of being near to God. So, so Jonah, he doubted the goodness of God. He rejected the word of God. He fled from the presence of God. He abandoned the call of God upon his life. Again, remember the captain, why aren't you praying, Jonah? When we get down to verse 12, uh, no, I'm sorry, in verse 9, that passage that we read, they all asked Jonah all these questions, including what is your occupation, right? Verse 9, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? Jonah answered all those questions except for the occupation question. He didn't tell him he was a prophet. I'm a prophet. It's my job to bear witness to God wherever God sends me. That got left off the table. It reminds me a little bit of uh, that video that you can find online of Penn Jillette, of Penn and Teller, the, the magic duo. This is about four years ago. Um, Penn Jillette is, uh, I guess it's a vlog, right? A video blog. <laughs> and, and he's talking about the fact that after that, a show that they had had that night, uh, a man came up to him who was in the audience and said, I want you to have this. And it was a little pocket, you know, Gideon's New Testament and Psalms. And he said, you know, listen, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm a businessman, as if that somehow guarantees that he's not crazy. But, you know, whatever. He hands him this little Bible and says, you know, I want you to read this. And, and Penn Jillette in the video is saying, you know what, I'm an atheist. I reject this God that this guy is referring to, but I respect the fact that he was trying to proselytize me. Because if you believe that there is a hell, and if you believe that if people don't put their trust in the God that you worship, they will go there and miss eternal life and then not tell people that because it's going to feel socially awkward, how much, this is, this is what Pendulette says, how much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. Reminds me a little bit of what's happening 
in Jonah, and it reminds me a little bit too much about what's going on in my life. But how could Jonah pray? How could he evangelize? His heart was already in Tarshish. He was already disconnected, at least emotionally and spiritually, if not physically, from the presence of God. There was no fear of the Lord going on in Jonah. There's no worship, no love, no joy, no desire to serve, no sense in which Jonah was amazed at the grace that God had shown him. And that's going to be the theme by the time you get to the end of the book as well. And that's our problem as well. Listen, when it comes to being witnesses in the circles that God has put us in, whether it's the neighborhood circle, the family circle, the school circle, whatever the case may be, God has put us in these relationships, in these circles with people who are not Christian. And he's put us there for a time, and he's put us there for a reason. And the reason that we don't share the gospel is not ultimately because we're afraid of what they will think about us. That's true. That's there. Nor is it ultimately because we're afraid of uh, saying the wrong thing and sounding like a fool. That's true. That's there. Nor would I say is it ultimately because we don't love them and have concern for them. I think we do. I think the issue ultimately behind our reluctance to be a witness to God is the simple fact that we do not fully grasp and appreciate how much God loves us. The gospel is not so real upon our hearts that there's this overflow into the lives of other people. We can't not tell people about Jesus because of everything Jesus means to us. I think if we deal with that issue, all these other things are overcome. What will they think about me? Will I sound like an idiot? Who cares? I want them to know my Jesus. That's missing in my life. Perhaps it's missing in yours as well. Jonah doubted the goodness of God. He rejected the word of God. He fled from the presence of God. He abandoned the call of God. And consequently, he slept. He slept. He was shut down physically, emotionally, spiritually. Shut down. In verse 12, Jonah's going to say, you must throw me overboard to be saved. And, and we don't find out why he said that. We don't, we don't know if he had had a change of heart. Right? God is, ever God say, let them throw you overboard. I'm going to bring a giant fish. I'm going to save you and you're going to be able to go on to Nineveh. And Jonah's saying, yes, that's exactly what I want. Throw me overboard, guys. I don't think that's what's going on because by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, Jonah's still sulking. So I don't think he's had a change of heart. Is he, you know, like still shaking his fist in rebellion? Like, I would rather die than serve God by going to Nineveh. I don't think we get any sense of that either because his heart looks pretty soft by the time you get to chapter 2. Perhaps it's due to the conclusions we've all come to at times in our lives. We ask ourselves questions like, could God still use me? Given the things that I've done, given the choices that I've made, given the mess I've made of things, even though I know better, could God still use me? Probably not. Will God still accept me? Probably not. Guys, just throw me overboard. I'm the problem. Get rid of me. 
and you'll be saved. I fear this is where a lot of us are. That when it comes to what just kind of our <laughs> experience of God and what it means to be his people in his world where storms blow, it's that we're, we're numb. We're not so much shaking our fists in rebellion against God. We're just spiritually numb. We're asleep. And when we wake up long enough to think about it, we despair. God could never use me. My life could never count for anything. I'm not even sure God loves me. I'm just going to go back to sleep. Jonah's fear, his reverence for God is gone. It's a distant memory. It exists in word only. So what about the sailors? Let's look secondly at the sailors' fear. The sailors made a futile attempt to eliminate their fear of the storm. They were, in verse 5, afraid. And by the time you get down to verse 10, they are exceedingly afraid of the storm. Verse 11, then they said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Why? Because it's obvious Jonah's not going to do anything. Jonah's not going to pray. Jonah's pulled the blanket over his head and turned over. What do we do to you, Jonah? Jonah says, you need to throw me into the water. And, and they decide they can't possibly do that. They... How, how could they have this man's blood on their hands? He's innocent toward them. You know, whatever's going on between him and his God, he's innocent toward them. How could they kill him by throwing him into the sea? And so they're, in verse 5, they're crying out to God. Again, remember, the wind is swirling, the waves are crashing, the boat's breaking up. They're each crying out to their own God, and they're deciding we can't throw this guy overboard, and so they row hard to get back to shore. The text actually says they were digging their oars into the water, straining and fighting to get to dry land. How were they responding to the storm? They cried out to their gods to save them, and they rowed harder. How are you responding to the storms in your life? How are you responding to the storms in your life? First of all, if you're not a Christian, is there any sense in which you fear the storms? If you're not a Christian and you recognize how fragile life is, but yet think that this is all that life is, when the storms come in that threaten your existence, that threaten your happiness, that threaten your relationships, are you afraid? And when the storms start to throw even harder, such that you think that greater storm may come, the, the storm that is death, are you exceedingly afraid? Are, are you awake enough to be thinking about ultimate things like that? Or are you asleep? Woody Allen, for all the things we could say about Woody Allen, he is very much awake when it comes to his fear of death. In an Esquire magazine interview, a number of years ago, he said this, death is absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. It makes our lives look as irrelevant as waves breaking on the seashore. I don't know how you go on if you recognize that and yet continue to pursue, pursue any kind of meaning in life. 
So there, there is this storm that is the storms that threaten the things that we would look to for life because all we've got is this world. There are the storms that threaten our very life, but then the Bible tells us there is this greater storm, even in the storm of death, which is the storm of God's judgment. The Bible says in Hebrews 9 that man is destined to die once and then comes the judgment. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Isaiah, another prophet from the Old Testament, said this in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. There are no some people that are a little bit more, you know, good in God's eyes than others. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid upon Jesus the punishment we all deserve. So do you fear the storm? But then do you cry out to your gods to save you rather than crying out to the Lord? They cried out each to their own gods to save them. Now this isn't, the question I'm not asking you is do you have, you know, little idols on your mantle the question I'm asking you is, do you have idols in your heart? An idol is whatever you look to for deliverance in the storm. It's that simple. Just like the sailors in this passage who cried out to their gods to save them in the storm, your idol is whatever you look to for deliverance in the storm. And if it's anything other than the God of the storm, the Lord of the storm, it is an idol in the end that will fail you. So are you crying out to whatever you think you are, will deliver you or are you just rowing harder? Are you just working harder? Are you just keeping busy? Or are you sleeping? Anything to keep from thinking about ultimate things. So here's, here's Jonah's fear. Here's the sailor's fear. But what, third, what was the purpose of the Lord in all this? What was the purpose of the Lord in the storm? Well, first it was to save Jonah. I love the, the two buts in verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Verse, verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The Lord appointed the fish in verse 17. The Lord appointed the plant and the worm, as we see later in chapter uh, 4. Why? Because the Lord loved Jonah. He wanted to rescue Jonah. You do realize he did not need Jonah to accomplish what he wanted to do in Nineveh. It's not like Jonah was so central to his plan that he couldn't have repentance preached in Nineveh if Jonah didn't do it. It wasn't about the Ninevites at this point. It was about Jonah. God said, I love you, Jonah. I want you for my own. I want to rescue you. I have pledged myself to you. My grip on you will always be stronger than your grip on me, Jonah. And so I'm coming after you. And I'll bring the storm to do it. You guys remember the, the Runaway Bunny? Little book by Margaret Wise Brown. It's a beautiful little story, right? Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away, so he said to his mother, I'm running away. 
If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. And Jonah's thinking, I know where this story's going. I don't like it. There's nothing gentle about God pursuing runaway Jonah. And yet, a greater love for runaway Jonah is there than any mother could have for her child. Why the storm? Because God loves Jonah. He won't give up on him. Why the storm in your life? Because God loves you. He will not give up on you. He will use whatever means are necessary in order to rescue you, in order to reclaim you for himself. If it takes a storm in your life in order to wake you up to the reality of his existence, he will do that so that you can know him in a way that enables you to prevent that greater storm of his judgment that is coming at the last day. So God's purpose in the storm is to save Jonah. But it's also to save the sailors, right? In the end, their fear of the storm was eclipsed by the fear of the Lord. Take a look with me. Let's just finish out this section here. Picking up in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice it's all caps. They are using the personal name of God. They're not crying out to their gods or the unknown God. They're crying out to Yahweh. And they're crying out as one. They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In the end, their fear of the storm, their exceeding fear of the storm, was eclipsed by their fear of the Lord. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing in this passage. At the end, they weren't running around making sacrifices with the winds still whipping and the, and the waves still crashing, making foxhole promises. Oh God, if you get me out of this, I'll promise I'll save you, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Let's get whatever we can, you know, meat still on board and sacrifice. No, the winds had died down. Jonah's in the water. The wind has stopped. The sea is calm. Then they're offering sacrifices. And then they're making vows. This is worship. It's worship as best they knew. But it's worship. It is, in reality, the fear of the Lord. Is there awe? Yes. Is there joy? Yes. Is there a desire to know and serve and worship this God? Yes. This is the fear of the Lord. And so my question is, will your fear of the storm be eclipsed by the fear of the Lord? Will you call out to God in the midst of the storm and begin to experience the joy of salvation? So let's wrap it up. The purpose of the Lord in the storm is twofold. Save Jonah. Restore to him the joy of his salvation. He wasn't even asking for it. He knew it. Psalm 51, again, Jonah would have known. 
Restore to me, O God, the joy of my salvation. And God decides, I'm going to do that for Jonah, even though he's not asking for it yet. Restore him to the path he was called to walk. God still brings storms in order to accomplish the same thing in us, either because of our sin, you know, God disciplines those he loves, but also simply because we live in a broken, fallen world. But in the storms, God has a purpose to rescue God saved Jonah. God saved the sailors. He granted them the joy of a salvation that they had not yet known. And God uses storms to do the same for you. So will you call out to God for your salvation? The purpose of the Lord in the storm is to save. To save those who are running. To save those who are sleeping. And to save those who are awake and afraid. But how? How does he save? How does the Lord of the storm deliver us? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus picks up the story of Jonah. And he says this in Matthew 12, verse 39. Speaking to scribes and Pharisees who are saying, we want to see a sign Jesus. Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the true and greater Jonah. The ultimate storm is the storm of God's judgment, and Jesus is the true and greater Jonah who alone can save from that storm. The men on the boat were saved from the storm of God's judgment through the sacrifice of one who was willing to lay down his life for them. It's Jonah. You and I are saved from the storm of God's judgment through the sacrifice of one who is willing to lay down his life for us. That's Jesus. Jonah was guilty and the men were innocent. Jesus was innocent and yet he willingly laid down his life for the guilty. He carried our guilt and our shame. The men cried out to God, may his innocent blood not be upon us. The only way that we are saved is if we cry out concerning Jesus, may his innocent blood be on us. Because it's by the blood of the Lamb, it's by the blood of Jesus that we are saved. It's by his wounds and his wounds alone that we are healed. And so there's there's fear all over this passage, but there's grace all over this passage. There's grace for Jonah in the storm. He doesn't get it yet. At some point, as he's making his way down to the deep, he gets it, and we'll see that in chapter 2. But there's grace for Jonah, there's grace for the sailors, and there's grace for anyone who will see in the storm a call from God to be rescued from the fear of death, the fear of God's judgment, and know the fear 
that is in fact the awe and the joy and the peace of being in the presence of God now and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We ask that you would seal these truths to our hearts. We acknowledge that so often in our, in our spirits, we're sleepy, we're numb to things that we know are true, and so we ask that you would enliven us. And for those who are here this morning who's, who, who are, are spiritually, whether they would acknowledge it now or realize it even, are actually dead to you, oh God, would you make them alive? That they might look to you the true and greater Jonah, Jonah, and find rescue from the great storm of your judgment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.